0: The words of Ananias to Paul in Acts 22.15, uh, where he says, you're going to become his witness to all people of what you have seen and what you have heard. You will be his witness. And we'll come back to that verse in a little bit. And then over in chapter 23, verse 11, the Lord is speaking to Paul, saying, just as you have testified or been a witness to me in Jerusalem, so you will also testify of me and must testify of me in Rome to be a witness there. So this whole passage, really, from chapter 22, verse 1, to chapter 23, verse 11, is all about this this concept, if you will, of being a witness for God. What is it to be a witness for God? We... We talk about that a lot. We throw that word around. Really, in in its basic essence, it is just about living a life that gives evidence of God in us at all times and in all situations. Because what we're going to see tonight throughout this passage of Scripture is that Paul could stand before the uh, civil authorities of Rome. He might be standing before the religious authorities of Israel. He might be standing before just the general population of Jerusalem, it didn't matter. God wanted him to be a witness and give evidence of the reality of, of him in his life, no matter who he was talking to, who he was with, who he was encountering, and what situation he was in. And I say all that at the beginning because if you don't get anything else, get that. That's the one thing we can all take away is that When we step forth from our beds every day, no matter where we go and who we encounter and who we're around, God wants us to be a witness and give evidence of the reality of him in our lives each and every day and each and every situation. You know, it's it's not like, you know, some Christians are like, well, I'm going to take a class on witnessing. And witnessing for them is just reduced to uh, sharing the gospel with somebody who's not a believer and who's lost and bringing them to Christ. And certainly that is part of it, but witnessing is way more than that. Witnessing is giving evidence of Jesus Christ in my life and the Holy Spirit in my life to everybody I meet, Christian or non-Christian, in every situation. And again, you see that in Acts 22 and in Acts 23. So now back to the beginning, we see here, if you were here with us last week, that basically this mob in Jerusalem had gotten so stirred up about Paul, they'd begin to sort of throw false accusations against Paul that he was anti-Jewish and anti-the law of Moses and that he had brought a Gentile into the court of, of the Jews and all this and none of it was true. And so they're getting ready to like basically kill him and he's rescued by the commanding officer of the Roman legion that was stationed in Jerusalem at that time. And he asked the commanding officer, may I speak before this large group? Again, Paul always had in mind, here's an opportunity to do what? To witness. Here's an opportunity to give evidence of God In my life, and there's a huge crowd here in Jerusalem at this point. So the commanding officer gave him permission, and so we pick it up in chapter 22, verse 1, where Paul is gathering their attention, and basically he is saying, My fellow Jews, listen to my defense. And I want you to again look at those two words my defense, it is the Greek word apologia. It is the same word that is used in 1 Peter 3.15 where Peter writes, set Christ apart as Lord in your hearts and be always ready to give an answer, an apologia of the hope that lies within us. It is basically a defense of our faith. It is telling people not only what we believe but why we believe it. And this isn't so much a defense of Paul personally. What Paul is going to do is basically defend the Christian faith and defend Christ and and let these people know that Christ is not dead, that Christ is very much alive, and that he's working through him as he speaks. So, again, that's the way we need to look at, you know, sometimes we think of the defense of the faith as, as simply you know, maybe trying to discuss things with, again, those that are not believers, and certainly that's the case here. These Jews that predominantly Paul was speaking to, they they weren't believers, but he was just trying to say, look, I am here to give you an answer Uh, because uh, most of them were still under the uh, teaching that the only way to God is by works you know, by being good enough and all of that. And Paul, again, is going to take the opportunity to proclaim that one can be justified before God apart from the works of the law through the righteousness of Christ, not through our own righteousness. So that's where we start off. And so just imagine this. There's this throng, there's this mob of people, and they have just almost torn Paul to shreds But now they are quieting themselves before him as he speaks in Aramaic, which would have been sort of the marketplace language. In other words, Paul was very strategic even in the language he chose at this point because he knew that predominantly all the people that were there would understand him. You see, if he spoke in maybe something else, he would have cut some people out. So this was also a very intentional choice by Paul to again reach as many people As he possibly could with the opportunity that he's given and basically Paul goes back and just shares with them about first of all his Jewish background that far from being anti-Jewish Paul says if anybody's a Jew it's me he said you know I was born in in Tarsus uh, of Cilicia and he said I grew up most of my life here in Jerusalem And I was educated here in Jerusalem by maybe the greatest teacher of all, Gamaliel, who, you know, was known as maybe the greatest Old Testament, uh, you know, teacher of of all time. And that Paul sat under him. And Paul is saying, "I, I had all this education. I have all this knowledge. I'm coming from the same place you all are, you see. But then Paul says this too. In verse 3, he makes a very interesting statement. He says, even in all this, he says, I was zealous for God just as you all are today. In other words, the reason you're so fired up about me is really because you have a passion, you have a burning for God. But like me, before I met the Lord, and he's going to talk about how he did that on the road to Damascus, There was this burning, there was this passion, there was this zeal, but he didn't have the right knowledge. That's only half of it. That's why, like Jesus says, you know, the Father's looking for those to worship him, true worshipers, and they must worship him in spirit, but also in truth. Paul had the spirit, but not the truth. He had to come to Jesus Christ. And and I want to stop here because it's something very important for us to make sure that We are, in a sense, growing in both areas. Uh, You and I can be maybe very good about growing in our knowledge and growing in instruction and sitting under the Word and going to Bible studies and all of that. But again, what about our passion? What about our burning for God? What about our zeal? And I'll be honest, I think it's a lot easier sometimes to give Christians... uh, just, you know, instruction and information and all of that, that they can gain the knowledge that they need because getting their heart to a place where they burn for God, to me, that's a lot more difficult, you know? It's just a lot more difficult. And to me, that's that's again why... Worship is so important, and that's not the only way we express our passion and zeal and burn for God, but it's certainly one of the big ways, and that's why we want here worship in the Word to complement each other, because there's got to be that balance between worshiping God in truth but also in spirit. And again, you can see even through Paul's life how bad it is that, yeah, it was great that he had all this passion, but he didn't even have the right Savior, if you will. Yeah, he was still trying to save himself through the works of the law rather than recognizing Jesus Christ as his Savior. And he had to meet Jesus on the road to Damascus to get that straightened out. But that's part of the reason why God had his eye on Saul or on Paul eventually, was because God knew that here's a man that all he needed was the right information. He, he needed, because he had a heart for God. He had a zeal. He had a burn. He had a passion. And you can't replace that. You know, that's really hard to create. That's something that to me has got to come from within a person as they, you know, grow in their relationship with God. And obviously, I would love a church where we are filled with people who know the truth and the truth is setting us free and we've got our our growing knowledge of the Lord, but where we also have that burn for God, where we've got that passion and that zeal for God, where our heart literally beats for God and where we can't wait to thank Him and worship Him and praise Him and and express not only our understanding of God and our comprehension of God but also our love for God, our adoration of God. And so you see that here. But then notice in verse 4, Paul goes on to say, but I persecuted this Way. And there again, even Paul is using language that Luke used to describe basically Christianity at this point. It was the way because it was describing a perceptible lifestyle, that there was a way of living that was distinctive from other ways. And of course, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And so it is one who is following the way of Jesus, who is on the pathway of Jesus. And you and I, as his followers, need to make sure that we are going his way and that we are following him because, very interestingly, as Paul now goes down, he starts to basically tell his conversion story. And he says, look, I was on the road to Damascus. I had already received permission from the a Jewish hierarchy in Jerusalem, to leave Jerusalem and to go to Damascus and to arrest Christians there, to bring them back, to throw them into prison, maybe even put some of them to death. And Paul says, as I was on the road to Damascus, it was in the middle of the day, it was about noon, all of a sudden this brilliant light comes out of nowhere and just blinds me and knocks me to the ground. And says, and then I hear this voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul says, I'm like, who, who are you, Lord? And the voice said, I am Jesus, the Nazarene whom you are persecuting. And then Saul's like, well, Lord, what, what do you want me to do? And, Saul said, and Jesus says, I want you to go into Damascus. And I want you to find a man there named Ananias. And you'll then be told what else I want you to do. And Saul here, Paul is relating the fact that he was so blinded that, that you know, he couldn't see. So in a sense, it was a very humbling thing for Paul. He had to be led by those that were with him into Damascus because he couldn't see to get there himself. I mean, you think about it. Here's this very proud man that's going in basically to round up a bunch of Christians, bring them back to Jerusalem, and punish them for their faith in Christ. And now he's been knocked to his knees very quickly, and now he's groping around trying to see. And and he also relates the fact that those who were with him saw the light, but they did not hear the voice that was speaking to him. So he moves on in the story. And he says when he got there, he met this man named Ananias, who was a God's appointed man to meet up with with Saul at this time. And Ananias comes along and basically says, Brother Saul, regain your sight, verse 13 of chapter 22. And then I want you to zero in on what Ananias says in these next three verses. This is really one of the, the key parts of our passage tonight. He says, the God of our ancestors, chapter 22, verse 14, has chosen you to know his will, to see the righteous one, and to hear a command from his mouth. Now, I want to stop there before we move on to verse 15. Because in a sense, all of this that Ananias says to Saul at this point in his life, also applies to us in this way. First of all, notice that Ananias says to Saul, the God of our ancestors has chosen you. The word literally means to be hand-picked by God. Do you realize here what Ananias is expressing? That God, when he saves us, just like Saul, also has a purpose and a plan in mind. And that one of the great reasons why we as human beings want to follow God's plan and purpose and will for our lives is because he handpicked us for that. He created us in a way that he knows this is exactly what will fit you To a T, this this is where you can glorify me the most. This is where I can use your life to reach and impact and influence the most people. I want all of us tonight, not just Saul, to know that you have been handpicked by God for what God wants you to do in your life. And then he says these three things. The first, God wants us all, not just Saul, to know his will. God doesn't want to hide his will, his plan, his purpose from us. God wants us to know it. Why? Because God handpicked us for his will. God says, this is what I want you to do with your life, and I have chosen you for this particular responsibility and role. I created you with it in mind. I saved you with it in mind. I knew about this even before you were born which is what other passages of the Bible says. Then he says, it is also that God wants you to see the righteous one. A very interesting uh, title for Jesus. And yet it really goes back to the passages in the great prophet Isaiah that talked about the righteous one would come and would bear our sins and and would be the suffering servant of, of God. And so that's why he's saying, I want you to see the righteous one. The word see here doesn't necessarily mean to see with our physical eyes, but to perceive. To perceive Jesus. To again have a comprehension and an understanding of who he is. And very interestingly too, especially for those who are trying to work their way to heaven or or do the good works thing, notice that it is to perceive or to see the righteous one because in us there is no righteousness. The only way we are righteous before God is by perceiving and seeing the one who is righteous. He who knew no sin became sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. 2 Corinthians 5, 21. Jesus is our righteousness, and we need to every day see the righteous one and perceive him, you see. And then finally, to hear a command from his mouth. God wants us to know him, see him, and hear him. And just as he had that for Saul, he also has that for every last one of us. Every day, God wants us to know more of him. He wants us to see more of him. He wants us to hear more of him as he speaks to us out of his mouth. And notice too, uh, Ananias tells Saul here, this is not a suggestion coming from the mouth of God. This is a command coming from the mouth of God. And if you're not willing to do it, you will be disobedient to the very command of God. Then he says, God wants this because you will be his witness." To all people, notice, about what you've seen and what you've heard. Now, let's stop there, verse 15. Notice something very interesting here. And this should encourage all of us. God does not call us or ask us to be a witness out of a vacuum, to, to, to witness, to give evidence of things that we don't know. no. What God is doing here with Saul and what he wants to do with all of us is to draw us into him so that we will engage and experience him. Then all we are to do is to give evidence of the experiences and the engagement that we've had with God. Notice again the words of Ananias to Saul. You will be a witness to all people of the things you have seen and heard. Paul's not expected to relate things that he doesn't know, things that he hasn't experienced, things that he hasn't engaged in, things that he hasn't heard. No. What he is supposed to do is engage and experience God at a growing, deeper level always, and then simply just share and relate his experiences and engagement with God to others to give evidence of what God is doing in his life and how he is learning more and growing more and understanding more and hearing more and seeing more. That's being a witness. That's why our Christian life is to be an everyday, ever-growing, always-moving-forward relationship. (laughs) Because it's it's not to be like many Christians are like, Their their witness is all in the past. Their engagement and experience of God is all things that happened weeks ago or months ago or years ago. God wants us to keep our witness current so that as we meet people and as we come into situations, we have the things we've seen and heard from God that we can either apply to our own situation, to our own circumstances, or we can help others with and share them to strengthen, to comfort, to encourage them with as we walk with God every day. That's being a witness, you see. And then can I just say, I love Ananias. I love his attitude. Then in verse 16, he basically says, so what are you basically doing? You know, get up, get baptized, have your sins washed away as you call on the name of the Lord. Don't just stand there. Now take what I've given you and let's get this done. You know, I, I love that. It, it's almost like this sense of urgency that Anne and I has had. It's like, okay, now I gave you the message. Now, what are you standing around for? Do it, you know. That's a great, that's a great reminder for all of us because God doesn't want to engage with us and for us to experience him and then for us to just sort of sit on our hands God's going to have something or someone for us to be able to apply that to even if it's just us and it's a matter of now get going it's sort of like I'll use this it's like don't stay on the Mount of Transfiguration as wonderful as that is get down and get busy in in ministry and, and back in life because that's not where God wants us to live God wants us to live here and so it's like God wants us to experience and engage with him, but then get back to it. And that's exactly what Ananias was saying. So those verses, 14 through 16 of Acts 22, are really key. In fact, I'd encourage you, go back, read those verses, meditate on those verses, look at those verses a little bit longer than just tonight. There some powerful verses for all of us that, that talk about being a witness for the Lord Jesus Christ. But then Paul relates this. He says, so I went back to Jerusalem. I'm in the temple. I'm praying and all of a sudden God appears to me and basically says, Paul, I want you to get out of Jerusalem because the Jews here are not going to accept your witness. And Paul at this point actually sort of is contending and sort of debating a little bit with the Lord for this reason. He says, well, Lord, these people know what I was like. They know that I persecuted the church. In fact, he goes on and even relates a little bit of detail about his involvement with Stephen's murder that we didn't know up to this point. He says, I was not only there. He says, I not only approved of Stephen's murder and stoning. He says, I was actually the guy that held everybody's coat so that they could get a better wind-up with their rocks to stone Stephen with. He says, so they know my background which also means they can also see the change and the transformation that's taken place in Paul like nobody else. You see, that, that's part of it. And that's why Paul, Saul to Paul, is one of the greatest evidences for the reality of Jesus Christ being alive and resurrecting from the dead. How do you explain Saul's conversion? How, how do you go from this man who was, you know, so opposed to Christianity and so opposed to Christ, now becoming basically their leading spokesperson and champion of their cause. How do you explain that other than Saul actually had the experience that he relates on the road to Damascus? He had the zeal. He always had the burning. He always had the passion. He just didn't have the right information Jesus had to give him that. I'm the one you're persecuting. You need to get right with me. Then you can meld the truth now that you have with that passion inside of you, and then you're going to be a spiritual dynamo for God. So Paul's sort of saying, God, I think this will give me a platform with them. I, I, I think this, they'll, they'll listen to me because of my past. And God says, no. I want you to go quickly get out of town, I am sending you to the Gentiles. Well, the Bible tells us then, beginning in verse 22, that as soon as the Jews in Jerusalem heard the word Gentile, they went berserk. I mean, if you read what happens there, they literally go berserk. It says they start taking, you know, ripping their clothes and throwing dust in the air and screaming, saying basically Paul shouldn't even live. So they're going to try to kill him again. And guess who rescues him again? The commanding officer of the Roman army that's stationed in Jerusalem at that time. Let me just give you a little sort of geography. The temple complex had the outer court of the Gentiles and then you had the inner court that only the Jews could, could go into. On one corner of the outer temple complex was what was called the Fortress of Antonia. It was a large sort of three-story building where the Roman troops were stationed in Jerusalem so that in case, obviously, some uprising or something happened, they would be right there to detach some, you know, troops to and take care of it. And it was also high enough that though they sort of gave the Jews their privacy in their worship, the, the, the Antonio Fortress could look into the temple complex just to see how things were going. So obviously, they're seeing what's taking place here, and the commanding officer sends a detachment of troops in basically to rescue Paul, and they bring him back to the fortress of Antonia, to the barracks there, and now they're going to examine him because the commanding officer, from verses 22 through 29 This is this whole interaction that Paul now is having basically with the centurion, the commanding officer of the Romans. Now the the Jews have sort of been, you know, pushed to the side for a moment. And now Paul's getting ready, in a sense, to, to stand before the Roman authorities. And the Bible tells us that the commanding officer of the Roman army is just curious as to why the Jews hate this man so badly and so he orders him to basically be whipped. And so they, they literally are getting ready to, the centurions, to stretch Paul out and literally to whip him with a Roman flagrum, the same tool that was used on the back of Jesus before he was crucified. And Paul just turns to one of the centurions and says, um, Isn't it illegal to you know, whip a Roman citizen without a proper trial? And, of course, the centurion is horrified. They would all have gotten in big, big trouble if they would have continued. So the centurion goes back to the commanding officer and basically says, did you know that this guy's a Roman citizen? And I went, no, I, I didn't know that. So now the commanding officer has this little interaction with Paul and says, are you a Roman citizen? And Paul says, I absolutely am. In fact, it's very interesting that the commanding officer basically admits, I bought my Roman citizenship. Paul says, well, guess what? I was born a citizen of Rome. Now, we don't know how Paul was born a citizen of Rome. We have no details of that. But I want to point this out. A couple things. First of all, from verses 22 through 29, it really does center on this whole concept of citizenship. Because, Because Paul was a citizen of Rome, that was like, the get-out-of-free-jail, you know, card that Paul had. And what's amazing to me is it, it should remind us all of just the wonder of God that you and I in our lives, just like Paul, might go, ah, Roman citizenship, what, what good is that really ever going to do me? Small little detail in my life, you know. And yet, here at this point in his life, guess what? Roman citizenship... Was a very big deal and came into play in his life, you see. Because God is a God of the details, and nothing happens in our life, and nothing that we have in our life, and the resources and the things that nothing escapes God, and there's nothing that God can't in some way pull out and use at strategic moments in our lives. And you think about Paul's citizenship as a Roman. You know really what what was the big deal well the big deal was right here if if it was never used sort of like a password if it was never used up to this point here was the time where it was used and it came in handy don't discount anything in your life because you and I never know when maybe something that we think is insignificant or not very big deal or whatever how that piece of information or that relationship or that experience that we've been through or something, how that can come into play later on down the road. And we have no idea what value that is now, but sometime down the road we might see, oh my goodness, that played a huge role at this point in my life, okay? And the second thing about citizenship is this. This whole passage reminded me that beyond being a citizen of Rome, The best citizenship is to be a citizen of heaven. And I love what Paul said to the Philippians in Philippians chapter 3, verse 20. He says, for our citizenship is in heaven in which we await a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the biggest citizenship you and I will ever have. And because we are citizens of heaven, just like those that were citizens of Rome, that gives us some great privileges. Great responsibility, but also great privileges because of whose citizens we are. So after they find out that Paul's a Roman citizen, they're basically like, we're done for now. We're going to hand you back to the Jewish authorities. So the commanding officer in, uh, at the end of chapter 22 basically orders this, uh, the religious authorities of Israel to convene and to examine Paul because, again, he's trying to figure out why do these people hate this guy so so much? So the next day, chapter 23, Paul is now not standing before the Roman authorities anymore. Now he's back to standing before the Sanhedrin, this group of 70 men made up of Pharisees and Sadducees that were basically the rulers of the nation of Israel at this point. They were the, the religious leaders of Israel. And Paul starts out by saying, you guys might be trying to put guilt on me, but I have no guilt about what I have been accused of up to this point. He says, my conscience is clear. And I think the reason why the high priest reacts the way he does and has Paul basically slapped in the face is because if Paul doesn't feel guilt, if Paul has a clear conscience, that means that the Sanhedrin should have guilt and should not have a clear conscience because if Paul's good before God, that means they shouldn't be because they're the ones on the opposite side of Paul in this matter. This is a very interesting thing that's happening here. and I know we can't really appreciate it, but, you know, Paul's basically being called before the principal. And your pastor understands that because I was called before the principal many times in my school, you know, history. There is something, you know, a little intimidating about being called into the principal's office, but obviously here, you know, Paul has the the courage that's coming from the Lord and and basically is calling these men out. In fact, after he gets, you know, slapped, he basically calls the, the priest that ordered him to be slapped a whitewashed wall And he doesn't realize at this point that this is the high priest. Now some might go, how did Paul not know that this was the high priest? Let me give you some quick reasons why. All of them or one of them could be true. Let's not forget that Paul had terrible eyesight. The end of the book of Galatians, see what large letters I wrote with because Paul had terrible, terrible eyesight. In fact, that could have been his thorn in the flesh that he talks about in 2 Corinthians. So it could have just been that they... All looked a little blurry. Second of all, this was a hastily convened tribunal, so to speak. So they did not have time to put on all their regalia so that they would have looked like, you know, the high priest would have had his special garments on. It also could be that Paul knew physically that that was a high priest, but basically he was saying, I didn't recognize you because you're not acting like the high priest of God. It could be any or all of those. But basically, he is calling out the high priest of Israel. Now, when he does find out that it's the high priest, notice what Paul says. He does immediately say, I'm sorry, because he is wanting to show respect, not necessarily for the man But he wants to show respect, as the Bible teaches, for the office or the position of high priest. And so he sort of backs off at that point. But then he realizes, the Bible says, again, that he's in the midst of Sadducees on one side and Pharisees on the other side. And he knows, this group, he knows that the Pharisees, which is what he was a part of, that they believe in the resurrection of Christ along with angels and spirits and that the Sadducees don't. So Paul plays that card very strategically. He says, I believe I'm on trial here today because I believe and I'm teaching the hope of the resurrection. Well, obviously you see there in that passage then in chapter 23, the first 10 verses, that this just sends that whole Jewish tribunal into an uproar and they start arguing with each other. Remind you of anything? Anyway, we won't go into that. Um, can't get anything done because they can't, you know, see eye to eye on anything. Um, nothing much has changed in a couple thousand years, has it? Um, but here's what I want to get to tonight as, as we close this out. After that, again, the commanding officers and the Roman guards couldn't be in the meeting, but they could certainly hear what was going on And as soon as they heard that they were about ready to tear Paul apart again, he commands again some troops to go in and pull Paul out. Notice something interesting here. Again, talk about citizenship being used of God. Guess who God is using in these moments to basically keep Paul safe and protect him? The Romans. The Roman Empire. The, 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 you know, strongest Empire on earth at that time is actually standing with Paul. God is using them to protect Paul from Paul's own people so that they don't rip him to shreds. So we'll talk more about that next week. But I love this. It says, After Paul is rescued, the next night, the Lord stood near Paul, Luke says, and told Paul, Have courage, because just as you testified about me in Jerusalem, You're going to testify about me in Rome. Let me say a couple things about this to encourage all of us tonight. First of all, the phrase, the Lord stood near Paul. Literally, it was the Lord who's been standing near Paul. In other words, it wasn't like the Lord's all of a sudden running over to Paul and standing beside him at this point. It is, the Lord has always been right there. It is words of the Lord being present, being at hand, being right there with us at all times. And so it's something you and I need to remember. God may not feel like he's near to us, but God is always near. He is always present. He is always at hand. Nothing we go through, nothing that we're dealing with, we go through alone. The Lord is always standing near us and standing beside us every day, every moment of the day. Please remember that, to encourage you. In fact, it's very cool that the words stand near were words that were used of great friendships and great friends, that that's what friends do. You know, even the Bible says a friend who's near is better than a brother who's far away. There's a friend that sticks closer than a brother. The idea is that, you know, to have a good friend or a couple good friends that are always present, that are always at hand to help, support, encourage, that's the Lord. The Lord's the best friend we could ever have. And he's always going to stand near you. It's not like he has to come near to you. He's there always. Second, isn't it interesting that God tells Paul, have courage? (laughs) You know, we think of Paul as being this courageous, bold person. He doesn't, you know, he doesn't need encouragement. He doesn't need you know, somebody to come along and basically encourage him to be courageous. Yes, he does. He needed the Lord constantly to come along and basically embolden him and encourage him and tell him to have courage. By the way, this courage that God wants him to have isn't somehow him you know, finding it within himself or whatever. No, it's a courage that comes from the fact that the Lord is present, that the Lord is near. It is a courage It's like, God's with me. And if God's with me, who can be against me? God's right here with me, you see. So the courage comes from the understanding of the presence and power of God that is always there and available to us. It's not finding the courage within us, It is finding the courage that we can have in God and through our relationship with God. Have courage through me, in a sense, God would be saying. Or have courage because of me, if you will. Sort of like David going out to meet the giant Goliath because he knew the Lord was with him, you see. And then I love the confidence that, that God is giving to Paul here by reminding him that, Paul, you are invincible until my will and my purpose and my plan for your life is done, which is why he tells him, just as you have testified for me in Jerusalem, you must testify in Rome. In other words, Paul, I don't care how many people hate you. I don't care how many people are after you, how many people want you killed, want you dead, all of that. I will make sure as the Lord of the universe, whether I've got to use the Roman army, a centurion, a comm- your citizenship, whatever it is that I've got to use because it's all at my disposal because I am the Lord of hosts, that I will make sure that you get to Rome and that your life accomplishes everything that I had planned for it. And I want you and I to be heartened by that as well. You are an invincible servant of God until God's will, God's plan, and God's purpose for your life is complete. Nothing or no one can, can, can take that from you. God will make sure. Now, you might have to go through a lot like, like Paul. We all do, but God is near us. And we can all have courage by knowing that whatever we're going through The Lord is right there with us. His power is in us. And that we don't have to be afraid. We can stand courageously and boldly and face whatever it is, knowing again, no one or nothing can touch us. Nothing can separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus until God says, okay, done. And that was the encouragement God was giving to Paul because Paul was his witness, his witness. So let's remember before we close in prayer tonight that being a witness is not just every once in a while going out and witnessing, that in a sense we've got to take the mindset that I'm a witness 24-7, that everyone I meet, everywhere I go, every circumstance and situation I go through, I am to give evidence of the reality, of the presence, of the power of God in my life so that no matter what, I am witnessing in each and every situation, just like Paul, to the Romans, to the Jews, to the Jewish ruling authorities, to the Roman army, whatever, wherever Paul was, Paul was being a witness. And you and I are called to be that kind of everyday, every circumstance, witness for God as well. And God alone
1: can enable
0: us to do it because he's always near. Let's pray. God, we thank you for Lord just using Paul's life to teach us many things about what it means to be a witness. And to be reminded, God, that you were underneath Paul, beside Paul, behind Paul, in front of Paul, that you even prepared that table for Paul in the presence of his enemies, just as you will for each one of us. That though we may at times feel surrounded, the pressures of life are closing in, That the problems of life are mounting and situations are getting pretty difficult, but God, you never leave us nor forsake us. You are always present. You are always standing right beside of us. We might not feel you there, but by faith, we know you are. And you're just telling all of us, like you told Paul, have courage. Find our courage in and through you, God. And so I pray that each of us would do that tonight as we face the rest of this week, this month, this year. God, whatever lies ahead, may we face it courageously, knowing that you are with us. These things we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for being here, folks. We'll see you next week.